welcome to the Antifada, where undressed is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean Kibu. And I'm A.P. Andy. And we are joined by a very special guest today. His name is Nerv D. Makaspak. He's a geographer, filmmaker, and researcher in a very cool discipline called Geographies of Peace. Hello, Nerv. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So I would just like to kick things off by asking a question. We ask all our guests here at the Antifada before we talk about colonialism, genocide, armed struggle in the Philippines and around the world. I would like to know, Nerve, how pure is your hate today? My hate is so pure. I just had a shower before coming <laughs> here and I used a loofah to actually scrub my back. And I also use like a very kind of masculine smelling kind of liquid soap um, to really kind of like rub against my skin, but also kind of really kind of fire me up and fire my hate. Um, and all the way here, like I took two trains, I transferred, and so there was a transfer and that really kind of even fired up my hate. Nice. Whatever exactly. soap that is, I don't want to know because they're not paying us for that wonderful advertisement. And, uh, <laughs> I like the uh, Bill O'Reilly connection. He's also a man full. Oh, he loves the loofah. Has, uh, yeah. Was it a falafel he wanted to rub her with or a loofah? <laughs> he forgot what it was called and he called it a falafel. That's just <laughs> such a dark, cursed boomer image of uh, Bill O'Reilly just rubbing, rubbing falafel, falafel on himself <laughs> and getting angrier and angrier no, at he, that like he, Middle Eastern <laughs> food. He wanted to rub a falafel on her um, uh, body, uh, certain parts of her Ew. body in the shower. It'd get messy really quick. It wouldn't work. I mean, tahini. He should have gone for tahini. Right. <laughs> That's smooth. Yeah. Smooth and sexy. Anyway, um, just kidding. I mean, obviously, like, I'm, you know, definitely excited to be here. And um, yeah, it's great to kind of meet everybody. Um, I know Andy for a while now, but it's great to meet Jamie and Andy. Sean, sorry. <laughs> you call it either one. Okay. Yeah. They all look the same. We're all Andy's. We're all Andy's down here. So we, we first met because I saw you give a really amazing presentation at Woodbine uh, maybe about a year ago or more. Can we um, shout out Woodbine real fast? Yeah. we're Shout out to Woodbine. Yeah, uh, check out their fundraiser. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but you were talking about uh, the rise of Duterte, uh, you know, how he is a you know, a new kind of political figure in the Philippines. So we're going to we're going to get into that pretty soon. Uh, but the last time I saw you, we were talking about Amazon coming to Queens and um, starting to think about how people are going to oppose it, how they're going to try to stop it, what political opportunities that might open up. Uh, and you're telling me about this uh, as a geographer, you made a, a map um, to sort of start thinking about the struggle there. So you, you want to describe that? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Andy. Uh yeah, so um, I attended this meeting, uh, and Andy was there as well, uh, s uh, led by folks from Woodbine, thinking about uh, what we can do with this coming invasion of Amazon, uh, setting up their second headquarters here in Long Island City in Queens. Forget the caravan, folks. It's really Amazon. Right, the true exactly. Um, yes. Anyway, so um, I participated in a meeting because I was curious like how people are thinking about this um, kind of issue but also as a geographer, I'm really interested in the kind of continuing legacies of redlining in cities like New York City. And so um, I've been making maps about redlining uh, in, in New York, and I thought like, the issue of Amazon would be um, interesting to look into this framework of um, understanding the current situation pre-Amazon, right? Like thinking about the legacies of redlining and how 
you know, to what extent um, former redlined neighborhoods in Long Island City will be affected by, say, the coming of Amazon. And so now, um, I, I brought my map here, but obviously I cannot. Uh, I can describe it. <laughs> describe um, it in excruciating <laughs> detail, block right? By yes, block for exactly. Our listeners so the time. yeah. So the <laughs> other thing that I do is um, I teach and use GIS, which is um, Geographic Information Systems. So as a um, as a geographer, uh, I train myself in GIS, which is basically information technology. Google Image Search, right? Or like a tool. Um, to make us um, understand kind of different relationships, like spatial relationships, by actually intersecting different layers on the map, right? And for me, um, I use GIS to think about um, relations of power that are not normally visible, um, you know, when we walk around the street or even by looking at static maps, right? And so I've been using GIS to actually think about how we can add multiple layers of information, both spatial, temporal, and social information to reveal this kind of like invisible kind of forces that govern our lives, right, on a daily basis. Anyway, so redlining is an interesting phenomenon, I think, to understand in, in cities. Can you uh, uh, explain for folks who might not know what that is? Uh, right. What redlining was? Yeah. So redlining started around the 1930s in the U.S. and it is um, it was a uh, a policy um, coined and planned and implemented by both the state and finance institutions, particularly lending institutions. And around this time, when there were um, people um, of color, immigrant families, immigrant neighborhoods occupying what we would call now as inner cities, um, there was a trend wherein the government and this kind of financial institutions wanted to identify where they could actually bring in uh, money or capital um, through the form of loans uh, in building up uh, and, and promoting kind of like home ownership, right? Um, but obviously for the state, they wanted um, the financial institutions to somehow be careful of like giving, putting their money um, to neighborhoods that could actually um, pay them off, right? Mm. Pay, pay them back off. And so the government came up with a plan to survey neighborhoods in all the cities in the U.S. and identify particular parts of the neighborhood in these cities, right? And categorize them into four. Um, one is called best, <laughs> so like areas <laughs> of the neighborhoods that are best. It's the best. Yeah, it's the best uh, where um, finance institutions could really kind of bring in the money, right? And what kinds of people lived there? Yes, exactly. So it's a good question. <laughs> we'll get into that in a minute. So the Everyone second says we have the best people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so the the second category is still desirable, um, and then the third, I think, it's um, declining or definitely declining, something like that. Oof. And then the fourth is um, dangerous, as mm. hazardous, or something like mm. that. And hazardous for capital, right? And to answer Jamie's question, uh, the main really kind of category—I uh, mean, the main criteria, right—in these categories is really race. But specifically, if there's like a one black family, it would be automatically marked as red, which is the lowest of the category, mm. right? So it's like uh, redlined. Right. Um, so to kind of like uh, give like a short overview, so a lot of these neighborhoods that were occupied with by one or two or more Negro families or Black families were marked red on the map, and therefore were denied of this access to um, money and capital to actually um, own 
houses right? and better school districts as well, right? Exactly. Well, that's interesting because um, I've been watching a lot of uh, informative YouTube videos and uh, listening to really smart um, broadcasters like Tucker Carlson and Candace Owens and Tommy Lawrence. <laughs> and um, so basically what you're trying to say is that because structural racism doesn't exist and uh, because it's all a, um, an issue of uh, culture, that they went around and they basically redlined the areas where people had insufficient uh, culture and civilization, right? It wasn't a racism thing. It was just culture, right? <laughs> well, for me, I really see that as a very kind, <laughs> that was of, a <laughs> yeah, yeah, a very kind of deliberate <laughs> yes, uh, of racist policy. And I yeah. think I teach this in class, right? Because um, students at least the students that I teach, um, are not fully aware of this history um, in our cities. And redlining really allows us to talk as a, as a people, <laughs> as a community, um, to think about racism as beyond, say, like this kind of imagined... Right. Subjective um, positions. Subjective yeah. uh, positions, but also kind of discriminate, discriminatory practices. Right. right? Um, and redlining really reveals this kind of, again, like revealing this kind of relations of power really, um, you know, shoved into our throats by both the state and financial institutions. Right. So when uh, you talk about um, the incredible wealth gap, not income just income, but wealth gap between, say, the average white family and the average black family in America, it is it comes directly from this history because what is the way traditionally that uh, American uh, working class and middle class people have gotten, you know, some assets, it's homes. Mm -hmm. So if um, there were these policies set in place, you know, almost 100 years ago, um, it goes a very, very long way uh, towards explaining why we see these deep structural uh, inequalities in wealth and opportunity, right? For, right, uh, absolutely. And there's another, for me, um, particular important moment that happened around the redlining um, phenomenon because it also um, consolidated who we would call now as white people, mm. right? Because this, um, the German immigrants, Polish immigrants, Eastern European immigrants who used to live in redlined neighborhoods, they were forced to leave these areas, right? And then they kind of like... Um, would you say that some uh, blocks were busted? There was some block busting perhaps? I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> um, You're familiar with the term blockbusting. That went out of business a few years ago. <laughs> blockbusting. Uh, block it, it, was, it was the process it's where... It's when you've got ghosts on your block and you have to call the blockbusters and I they see. come with the ectoplasm guy. <laughs> the block it is was, gone now. There's just ghosts. <laughs> it was, um, as I understand it, because I've studied geography Is too, it like kind I, of like the hollowing... It was, um, a, it was a very intentional, cynical, and disgusting um, practice that took place in the 30s, 40s, especially 50s mm -hmm. and 60s, where um, if there was one of these um, districts that um, you know, were considered desirable, meaning they had um, what were considered white people in it, and uh, you know, finance could make some money off loaning uh, there, um, some speculators would come and they would... Um, specifically move a uh, black family onto the block and then they would have people pass around uh, pamphlets that said do you want to live in a neighborhood that's changing like this sell your house now you know before the neighborhood goes to shit and it was this very racially charged process that they used very effectively in order to kind of hollow out these working class communities that could have been non-segregated uh, in order to make a massive profit by buying these houses cheap and then uh, selling them black, back to uh, black or people of color um, uh, at a high rate of profit. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really what exactly happened. And, you know, like the movement towards suburbia of other kind of who would later identify as white immigrants um, really came out from that process. So Amazon is going to fix this in Queens, right? Yes, Amazon through its... Um, uh, boxing synergy. facilities, yes, yeah, synergy drones, and like innovation, <laughs> you know, but also kind of like prime subscription <laughs> and also like a two day delivery with an option for like a delayed delivery so you can like get points that you can claim later on with Amazon Pantry. Um, if you good collect for the enough class. points, you get to be white, right? Yes, <laughs> definitely. And you know, you don't have to think about the Mexican. Packers mm. of the, the of the, the the product that goes into your dog. Right, or you don't have to worry about the union halls that are all around that area. No, the, don't worry about um, it. I've actually worked in a shop uh, with my union around there that uh -huh. uh, you know did light manufacturing and construction. You don't have to worry about any of that, and you could always just have Amazon drones if you have a problem with a block. Uh, just take a person of color, and the drone could just drop them right in the middle of the block, right. and then all the people will flee, and then you could buy it up for really cheap. It's like the new. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, blockbuster exactly and also <laughs> like again like this will be probably be the death of the bodegas right ah. like um it's a new kind of new york city landscape uh post amazon right like and i think this is what happened in seattle um really kind of um erasing uh literally uh, all these kind of small um family-owned or immigrant-owned kind of shops and stores within the area that and also of course um changing the demographic right i mean i lived in san francisco as well for over five years and there you can really see uh, I was living there before um, crazy hap you know crazy stuff happened with the with the Google buses and stuff like that um, but yeah you can literally see the changing kind of demographic of what types of people are moving to my neighborhood where I used to live in the mission district right and how that really led to increases in rent increases in cost of living but also just like changes in the behavior of people and how they interact with each other in the kind of like space think of all the poor bodega cats who are suddenly going to be unemployed like <laughs> how are you going to keep them off the streets think god of, think of the meow meows they're going to be a menace <laughs> right yeah uh, um but yeah just like to point out um you know, again to like to respond to andy's question um how amazon will potentially impact right so again we're not kind of predicting what amazon will will bring in uh but i think it's important for us to understand Again, like this red line, redlining history of um, of New York City, particularly in Long Island City, right? And I'm showing it to to Sean here. Um, the map. This is Long Island City, and I've made, you know, I've indicated the formerly redlined areas here. You can actually see the green. Uh, I put, I colored, of course, the red lines. So I put, colored them red, but I also marked within this formerly redlined neighborhoods in Long Island City the new buildings that were constructed say like 10 years ago mm. which i mark here as green and there are more than i think over 50 to 75 new buildings constructed in the last 10 years in formerly redlined areas and this is really a good example of what gentrification looks like uh in 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 new york city right like this kind of like flipping of um, properties bringing in new capital raising the speculating um the value of land in areas that are formerly redlined so right. the idea is if people don't own their own homes in those areas that they're much more vulnerable to gentrification and developers coming in in predatory ways right yeah absolutely but also thinking about 
the the extent of capital that that, that they could speculate, right? Because mm. again, if you're speculating land, say like in an already developed kind of like area, um, you can think of it as like, yeah, I can raise it to like billions of dollars too, right? But if you're kind of like making that speculation in formerly redlined areas that don't have access to public services, et cetera, et cetera, you can really kind of, you know, like, the the, the the difference of profit that you can make from the current value to the to the speculated value i think it's it would be crazy um really high i'd say two things uh first is that as jamie knows uh maps are maybe the top three they're uh, his favorite thing I, I just really love maps and your map is beautiful oh thank you um, <laughs> uh, what do you like about maps Oh my God, I'm obsessed with maps. Well, I studied some uh, Marxist geography when I was a student at one point in time. And um, similar to my love of trains, I just have like an eight-year-old's brain. And I, I just, I, I love it. I, I, that is actually a very existential question you're asking me. I'll have to think a lot about uh, what it means. But uh, the second thing I'd say, just as an addendum to this, because um, it's all very fascinating and you've obviously done a lot of um, research and uh, the map shows, I think, exactly what you're trying to <laughs> you oh, cool. know, get people to understand. But uh, on the flip side of the thing, coming from uh, my side, um, the there have been picket lines. Uh, all those new buildings in Long Island City, there have been picket lines up for years because uh, Manhattan, the high rises are primarily uh, union still, but non-union contractors have used Long Island City and downtown Brooklyn as a sort of beachhead to break the power of our building trades unions um, and to try to basically use them as the thin wedge to eliminate uh, building trades altogether in New York City. So every time I pass by Long Island City, and this is before Amazon, this has been happening for years, I just look at all those buildings and I, uh, I see um, scabbery and I see union busting. And so, you know, this isn't just a, a matter of speculation on uh, real estate. Uh, and developmentalism it's also an issue too of uh, labor rights right and I agree like um, I think the stakes are higher in areas like Long Island City right and it's and you're right it's not just about a question of possibly increasing rent but it's also a question about displacement of already redlined families and legacies of that. It's also a question of reinforcing those anti-labor policies by actually moving a company that's anti-labor right um, that's a great fucking you know, point yeah and then uh, Cuomo and de Blasio, of course, would claim to you be... You mean Amazon Cuomo? <laughs> that is his proper name. They would, uh, they always, uh, they showed up at that Me Too rally. Cuomo showed up at a union rally. You mean rally. Count Me In? Yeah, Count Me In. That's, uh, uh, that's uh, very totally different. different. Totally different. <laughs> Although we probably do need a Me Too movement in the building Count trades. Me Too In. <laughs> <laughs> Count Me In, but, too. Uh, no, <laughs> I mean, pointing out the hypocrisy of bourgeois politicians is really easy. But I guess the, the point I was going to make is that de Blasio and Cuomo both sort of like in this very machine politics sort of way uh, pay lip service to you know union labor in this uh, city but as you pointed out and I hadn't even thought of that bringing this anti-union beachhead in uh, Amazon uh, is very 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 detrimental I think to what is one of the last strong union cities in this country right and uh, and I also kind of um, concerned about how a number of institutions in New York City aside from the state, from the city and the state government, right, are also so excited and fired up, right, with the, with the Amazon. Um, thinking about Amazon as this kind of like innovative startup, kind of like tech company. And I don't necessarily agree with that. Like Amazon is a mall, right? It's a retail store with some publishing and media um, content. 
right? So it's not necessarily bringing in innovation the no, way... Sorry, they're like they're taking over the existing infrastructure in the world and already have to a large degree, right? Absolutely. They're an infrastructure company. Yeah, I mean, it's right. it's about it's not about the production of commodities; it's about the circulation of commodities. And what they've managed to do by using the internet, which is a relatively new, innovative technology, is they've been able to increase, I guess you could say, like the relative surplus value that comes from the distribution of goods by monopolizing it and getting around using the internet the actual physical brick and mortar infrastructure you know not just in a bodega but in all sorts of different businesses across the country and the globe absolutely and it's a very geographic phenomenon right the way they deterritorialize yeah. existing markets and re-territorializing that to the benefit of Amazon. And and on top of that, they're also, we know this, right? They bought Whole Foods, right? So they're also that kind of company, right? That monopolizes other services. Um, so it's not, you know, like, I think like part of my kind of hesitation to welcome with open arms, right? Amazon <laughs> are, are this kind you of like- any hesitation? <laughs> no, because I think, um, you know, Honestly, I've used Amazon, right? Oh, as, we, as, we a, as a graduate sure. student, it's really um, practical to use Amazon because when you're fucking like assigned to read the book the next day and you didn't really have time to buy it, you order it on Amazon because you want to get it like immediately. But anyway, so I think like a lot of our, a lot of kind of like the, the questions around Amazon, I think we need to kind of think about it not only, I think the point is like not only through the lens of gentrification, right? right. Um, I think we need to think about it through all possible lenses, right? Um, capital, flow of capital, circuits, right? Um, supply chains and stuff like that. Again, like re-territorializing kind of capital and how it kind of like reconfigures space, et cetera, and affects social relationships, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to keep our listeners up to date on this emerging coalition of unionized workers, bodega owners and customers, Marxist geographers. The cats, too. Don't, don't forget, forget the cats. Uh, Postmodernists, tacoonists. Um, meow, meows. We are all going to come together and uh, take back Long Island City as an autonomous zone. Unionize the drones. And uh, make mm -hmm. the map we want to see in that neighborhood. Um, yeah, fucking bring it on, dudes. So let's move on to another map now, a map of a country called the Philippines. Um, I think myself and a lot of our listeners don't know too much about the history of the Philippines. Uh, so... I want to ask you to kind of nutshell that history of its colonialism and U.S. expansionism. And then we're going to try to get into uh, who this Rodrigo Duterte guy is and uh, the uniqueness of, of him as a right populist. I just want to say real quick before you uh, touch on this matter um, that, you know, podcasting isn't the hardest thing, but it's also not the easiest thing. And I just like to give props uh, to Andy for maybe the most difficult segue uh, ever done on a <laughs> podcast before. Uh, Amazon and Long Island City to the uh, Maoist insurgency in Philippines. I've well got done, my Andy. own map right here that uh, only makes sense to me <laughs> okay. on how I did that. I think David Harvey Maps. would call it time-space compression. <laughs> oh, okay. I think Lobster Man would call it Maps of Meaning. Mm. Chaos. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon is bringing chaos. <laughs> it's feminine chaos. Well, yeah, so from one chaos to another. Oh, <laughs> yeah, my goodness. Go, uh, go. I mean, they're kind of very related, right, in terms of occupying spaces and... Um, Whatever. <laughs> no, no. You're, you're segueing. You're doing it. You're doing yeah, it. Yeah. That's great. Um, so, yeah. So, um, the Philippines is in... Um, 
Long Island City. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Damn, well, we heights, right? I, did, I didn't realize in 1898 that we colonized the Philippines uh, in uh, Queens. That's, right. that's incredible. Yeah, it was really yeah. close, so they time. did it very early. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, there's a lot of Filipinos in Queens, so that, oh, there's that. Okay. Um, but also, like, the Philippines is an island country, like in the archipelago, so it's made of... As is, as is Long Island. As is Long Island. Um, it's also long. Um, <laughs> in the other way, though, north-south. Right, yeah. exactly. It's elongated. Anyway, um, yeah, so the Philippines. The I'm Philippines. gonna stop interrupting you. No, now. it's great. I don't consider I this segue complete. <laughs> <laughs> We're having yes, way too let's much move fun on to <laughs> anyway. Yeah, um, let's get dark. <laughs> great, let's get dark. Okay, so well, you know, let's move forward to 1898. <laughs> 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 anyway, so 1898. Well, you know, like the U.S. came to the Philippines in 1898, right after what the U.S. called um, the Spanish-American War. Right, and and in history books, it was a triumphant war for the American Empire because they defeated in this kind of battle in Manila Bay in 1898 the Spanish forces that um, forced the Spanish um, colonial regime to uh, surrender right its sovereignty over uh, particular um, colonies, including uh, Guam, uh, Puerto Rico, Cuba and the Philippines, right? So that happened in 1898. Um, and that was really um, a particular moment in the U.S. Uh, history uh, in terms of like its internal politics. We ran out of a frontier with Manifest Destiny, so we had to take that abroad. Right, exactly. And they wanted more browner, like browner people. Yeah. Right, browner we people. We took over Mexico in 1848. We got some brown people, but then we had to find some more. Right, exactly. Um Exactly, right? So, <laughs> so it's really, um, yeah, so we all know the narrative, right? It's like Manifest Destiny, right? It was more about this really kind of extraterritorial extension of the U.S. regime, of U.S. power. Um, and uh, what happened then was the U.S. Uh, was really looking into um, access, honestly, to China, right? Um, and that became the narrative and the justification of why the U.S. would engage in this very kind of like hundreds of miles away sort of endeavor, right, to colonize uh, a particular kind of region in, in, in Asia, in Southeast Asia. And what was the ideological justification for that? Well, the ideological justification is still Manifest Destiny, okay. right? Um, this guy was like a, a senator, I think, at, in, you know, a former senator in that time of U.S. Um, Congress uh, actually had this um, justification that, you know, the U.S., uh, the Americans, um, you know, white supremacy sort of thinking about um, how they could colonize and civilize particular segments of um, non-civilized uh, brown population. Uh, civilized. Whenever uh, you hear that word, get uh, get really scared. Um, am I wrong in that uh, Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling's famous white man's burden was not about the British Empire, but it was actually he was talking about the American expansion, about uh, the United States taking up the white man's burden in colonizing the Philippines and elsewhere? I think so, too. And it also I think that inspired a lot of American um, colonial officers um, and you know, basically people who fan Americans who fantasize this kind of colonial um, extension, right, expansion, um, really what this poem about uh, really kind of fueled that desire. Um, so that so that happened. And then what happened next was, uh, particularly in the Philippine context, um, the U.S. arrived there 
as part of this drama of war, right? Um, in the Philippines, among critical historians, they would name it as a mock battle between the U.S. and Spain because it wasn't really a battle. There were like you know shots and whatever cannons being fired, and Spain immediately surrendered, right? And the idea, the premise there was that they, there was already an agreement, right? And they just had to stage this mock battle um, because it's shameful for a colonial power such as Spain to just surrender its colonies right to the U.S. Uh, without any fight. Even though Spain had been in decline for centuries at this point. Exactly, exactly. Um, and the U.S. is becoming, you know, like a new kind of power. Um, yeah, so, so that happened. And then the U.S. immediately took over the Philippines along with Cuba, along with Puerto Rico. Um, and what happened in the Philippines then was uh, the U.S. regime, its military, its navy, etc., launched um, a military rule, right? A military dictatorship for 10 years. The, the war itself against the Philippine people has been called genocidal. Uh, is that an accurate assessment, do you think? It is an accurate assessment. Uh, unfortunately, it's not being taught in many kind of high school or college American history class classes. Um, in the Philippines, critical historians would call it the Filipino-American War. Um, I'm not sure if a lot of Americans know that there was a Filipino-American War, and um, legacies of that and continuing kind of relationships based on war and pacifism uh, between the U.S. and the Philippine government. We love historical amnesia here. Uh, real quick uh, anecdote, when I was a uh, young leftist in high school, uh, my history teacher, I don't know, some capitalist shill, uh, taught us about uh, the Spanish-American War and about what happened in the Philippines, and she asked us to like draw a picture that like represented what like this war meant and I read some other materials and heard about how genocidal it was it was supposed to be a picture like you're supposed to talk about how like you know great it was that the United States was like you know expanding into the world and I wrote I drew this picture of just like American soldiers like bayoneting women and children which happened I, I read about that in other sources shout out to Howard Zinn probably how, yes yes uh, and that the uh, I was like a, a 15 years old and uh, the this my go-to bar or bat mitzvah present, P.S. <laughs> the, the teacher not only gave me an F, but uh, pulled me aside and uh, just really like gave me so much shit for uh, taking the position that uh, this war in the Philippines was a violent and brutal um, dispossession and uh, exploitation and murder of the Philippine people. So I got an F in that history class, and uh, I blame Howard Zinn. <laughs> yeah, but I guess you're one of the lucky few, right? We even had some discussion around this particular history uh, of the U.S. But yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that among Filipinos, everybody knows this as well or like has a critical understanding of this particular history. Obviously, the Philippines has been a colony and a neo-colony of the U.S. And a lot of Filipinos... Um, love America. They love it. Do you want me to say it again? Love <laughs> America. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. Right. The oh. biggest. <laughs> Maybe if we're not going too far ahead, uh, a, lo a huge part of the Filipino economy is based on foreign workers, right? So that that's a major reason why there's so many Filipinos in the United States. Yes. Um, Absolutely. The, the, the contemporary kind of mode of production in the Philippines is still agri agriculture, agrarian, but also um, exportation, like the export of Filipino laborers abroad to California, Filipino grape pickers who came to California um, 
in the 30s and the 40s, uh, you know, with the likes of Carlos Bulosan, a more kind of known Filipino grape picker, poet, literary figure, organizer, and Larry Itliong, a contemporary of uh, Cesar Chavez, you know, like labor unionist. Um, this was like the history, right, of that kind of labor flows between the Philippines and the U.S. But, of, you know, after like, like around like neoliberalization, whatever, um, the Philippine government also made it a policy to export its people to different um, countries abroad as basically domestic helpers, nurses, um, service job kind of like work, right? And this, this migrant Filipino workers abroad bring in the billions of dollars of remittances that, you know, basically uh, feed the local economy uh, and obviously the, the corrupt politicians in the country. But I wanted to also kind of add into that kind of um, history between the U.S. and the Philippines around the occupation that uh, this occupation of the Philippines uh, post-1898 was also met by resistance within the U.S. Hmm. by Americans, right? It wasn't like a f kind of like everybody was like happy with it. There were actually a lot of um, congressional sessions debating why the Americans would have to be in the why Americans have to be in the, the Philippines. M Mark Twain, I think, wrote a lot about it, right? He was very anti that war. Yeah, exactly, like and very kind of like anti-imperialist kind yeah. of reading of wow. that history. What what year was this? Because I feel like eighteen ninety eight. Okay. Because I feel like uh, since then, the uh, kind of anti-war, anti-imperialist sentiment among, say, organized labor has really fallen off. Yeah, I think this happened between 1898, obviously, but also until like before uh, World War II, right? Between 1898 until the 1940s, um, Americans, politicians, you know, uh, what we, they would probably call as, you know, um, whatever, anti colonialism kind of activists back then were not um, comfortable with this idea that they would that Americans are in the Philippines and even kind of like American people I don't know have you heard of the term thomasites mm -mm. so thomasites um, was the term was coined uh, this was kind of like what how I think about thomasites kind of like peace corps people so these are like the, the young Americans just out of college right who were um, shipped to the we went to the Philippines, boarded on this ship called Thomas, the USS Thomas, and these are like the young intellectuals, right? Um, that's why I, I think of them as kind of a peace corps because they want to do good in the new colony, right? And so they boarded this ship called Thomas and they were labeled as Thomasites when they arrived to the Philippines. And a lot of them were, again, like intellectuals, kind of like young college graduates who wanted to experiment and whatever, kind of like help build the new U.S. Um, civil society and government in the Philippines. Bring civilization to the Philippines. Exactly. Spreading democracy. Right, right, right. So we, we, don't, have we don't do that in the U.S. anymore. Right. We don't go around the globe spreading democracy at the point of a gun. Right, right, right. <laughs> so yeah, so one figure that I uh, closely studied, his name is David Barrows, and he's, he was like around in his early 20s when he went to the Philippines, and he graduated... Um, uh, as an educator, so he took he studied education, whatever, in college, and then he went to the Philippines, and early twenties, right? He became the secretary of the, the board of education, uh, the Department of Education, the department, the Bureau of Non Civilized, uh, Non Christian Tribes, etc. And they it, actually called it that. I know exactly. That's so mean. Right. Fucked up. 
Totally. And what's interesting with that is because David Barrows was um, from California, right? And he was very aware of the genocide against Native Ameri- towards Native Americans. Um, and he was actually very, um, I would say, kind of rep- repentant, you know, or like apologetic for that. And therefore, he wanted to establish this Bureau of Non-Christian Tribes in the Philippines to account, right, to take stock and account, make these people legible and civilize them uh, <laughs> it's interesting right I don't um, I, we're gonna move this forward but uh, just for uh, some historical context you know when we wonder about how Americans were um, kind of interpreting uh, this moment in time you have to understand that the late 19th century was the time when uh, populism and uh, the Socialist Party Eugene Debs uh, you know were rising uh, where the progressive movement uh, was becoming uh, quite big it was also a time um, you know it was only 20 years before the the World War one uh, and we all know how um, you know isolationist a lot of people were in the United States but also how principally anti-war uh, a, a very vibrant left was at that point in time um, and then you talked about the 1940s right uh, I think maybe in answer to Jamie's question about like what what why isn't that happening now? It's because um, you know socialism in the left uh, was obliterated essentially in the United States uh, in uh, first the Red Scare in the Palmer raids and then of course with McCarthyism. So right. without a vibrant left, you know, it's very difficult to have um, you know a, a vibrant anti-war. Movement. Yeah, I'm starting to think that war is always very bad for the left and the working around class. the world. Yeah. So while there's this um, kind of anti-war, uh, anti, uh, pre-anti-colonial leftist movement in the United States, is, is there any of that going on in the Philippines? Around the same period, uh, yes, like around the same period in the 30s, um, obviously like, uh, there was like a strong uh, anti-colonial oh. resistance that started around uh, within the Spanish colonial regime that continued on to oppose um, the U.S. occupation. And that uh, took the shape of organized armed struggle, right? Starting from the Katipunan against the Spanish colonial regime to um, a more kind of proletarian, sort of like workers' party kind of armed struggle against American occupation that also influenced the formation of the Communist Party of the Philippines uh, in the 30s. And um, in that part of the history in the Philippines, a lot of... um, Filipino nationalists, right, like anti-colonial, anti-imperialist uh, nationalists, leaders, and movements were really um, uh, demanding the the independence of the country against American occupation. But obviously, among the bourgeois kind of Filipino nationalists back then, what they were demanding from the U.S. colonial state is actually to make the Philippines wait for this another state of the U.S. <laughs> so there was a diplomatic lobby, actually, that emerged from the Philippines who, you know, hang out in, in the U.S. demanding, lobbying that the U.S. state actually recognize, recognizes the Philippines wow. as another state. It's all that about doesn't an alternative history. sound very communist. 
Oh uh, yeah, th- these are like Filipino bourgeois nationalists, mm. right? They wanted sort of like um, nationalism through this kind of um, extension of the U.S. power. They wanted an inter- uh, to be more integrated into U.S. capitalism. Exactly, that's their version of nationalism. Right. right. Mm. That, I mean, a lot of national liberation movements, that is their version of it, right? Exactly. But obviously, on the radical, the more radical kind of uh, side of the equation, the Communist Party emerged in the 30s. And they started organizing unions and workers, um, mainly in the cities, right? Mainly in the kind of industrial centers of the country. And fast forward to, of course, the, the, the World War happened. The U.S. actually made a promise that by 1935, uh, sorry, 1945, they would grant independence to the Philippines. Um, they set up like a commonwealth government, meaning like a temporary kind of like ad hoc um, government to prepare the country in 10 years for its independence. Like the mandates in uh, the Middle East. Exactly, like a transitional government, right? right? That's the kind of like the more contemporary term here. They in, they've introduced democracy, they've introduced elections, right? They've introduced free trade, you know, like market economy in the Philippines. You're, back you're almost ready to go. Exactly. We're going to get you there. Right, yeah. exactly. And they speak perfect English, right? The universities were patterned after the University of Michigan, et cetera, et cetera, right? So they were given 10 years to actually, f- you know, train themselves to become worthwhile kind of puppets of the U.S. regime. But obviously the war broke out. And um, here the, the Philippines uh, actually fought on behalf of the U.S. of U.S. interests, right during World War II, um, and then after the war um, ended, the U.S. became this kind of liberator of the Philippines from Japanese occupation, right? And here comes Douglas MacArthur, uh, Douglas MacArthur, right? Um, this kind of like mythic figure, very popular in the Philippines. Um, is he really? He, he is. Wow. He has like statues and and names of the streets and avenues. Uh, portrayed as this kind of savior of the Philippines from Japanese occupation, wherein, in reality, actually, the U.S. forces actually left the Philippines. They went to Europe, right, um, to participate in the war. And so the Philippines was left, really, to the hands um, of Japanese, of the Japanese occupation. And that's where another genocide happened. Very bu- brutal. Japanese exactly. are very brutal. Right, right. Their imperial. And who exactly was this Douglas MacArthur character? So Douglas MacArthur is like a, a U.S. military officer, a son of Arthur MacArthur. Um, he gives you grants to go to college and, uh, mm. you know, shoot <laughs> and gets people to shoot other people. Right. <laughs> um, and Arthur MacArthur, actually, his father uh, was also in the Philippines early on. So it's like a family of, like, <gasps> you know, like a father and son uh-huh. kind of like bonding <laughs> over, say, like how they occupied and <laughs> killed a lot of people. I mean, it's like the Bluths family. Like you could have a, a mm. sitcom about it or something like that. Right, exactly. Mm. Anyway, so Douglas MacArthur, his famous line is, I shall return, because he delivered that line before he left and his troops left to for Europe, right? And then Heard that one before. <laughs> you were, yeah, exactly. I'll be back. He went out yeah, for exactly. a pack of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> right. But obviously he came back with a bang, right? Like he they, they bombed the Philippines. They bombed Manila um, to assume, you know, presumably kind of like liberate the country from whatever remaining Japanese forces. But obviously the reading, of the critical reading of that is they, they bombed the country to really further debilitate the economy and any other kind of so- social, progressive, whatever relations existing, and the guerrillas, right? Um, and then so when the U.S. came back post-World War II, 
the country was really dependent on foreign aid, reconstruction, whatever. Similar to what's happening in other parts of the Middle East when, when the U.S. kind of come to bomb them. So uh, we just had an episode about Greece and the aftermath of the Second World War. Were the partisans who were fighting the Japanese, were similar to in Europe, were they uh, a lot of them communist or socialist-inspired guerrillas? They were pre-communist, but they became the kernel of a new wave of communists. Um, gotcha. It was called Hukbalahap, which is like an army against Japanese occupation that actually was formed by the former Communist Party in the 30s um, that also traces its history from the anti-colonial uh, movement against Spain. And so Hukbalahap, which is this army against Japanese occupation after World War II, had to deal with the comeback of American forces. And they fought, again, right, with arms against the, the return of American occupation forces. And that led later on in the 60s um, with the formation of a new kind of reborn kind of communist party that has that moved away from a purely kind of strictly kind of marxist leninist kind of movement back in the 30s 40s and 50s toward a more maoist inspired um, communist party that started in 1968 again that traces this long history of armed insurgencies back during the colonial period of spain i was going to ask you about that because uh, in my travels, I've found a lot of Marxist-Leninists as well as Marxist-Leninist Maoists who think that those particular types of communism uh, have a very important role to play in anti-colonial struggles. Absolutely. Um, so I've, I've kind of like studied this phenomenon for a while now because um, I came to the U.S. as a graduate student at Berkeley and... I was really interested in this kind of question around um, social movements, but also kind of insurgent social movements and how uh, people and different kind of publics participate in this kind of movements, right? And to what what are the stakes, et cetera. Um, now I'm kind of like moving toward uh, looking at kind of peace movements within this armed insurgencies mm. that we haven't really thought about, given the fact that they are protracted and I would argue never ending right um armed insurgencies and for me i'm interested in understanding how communities and individuals entangled right within this kind of prolonged armed insurgencies um that are maoist in nature uh and individuals and communities who are you know somehow sympathetic to the maoist movements but are not necessarily maoist themselves mm -hmm. right how did they imagine um their futures in a never-ending war and how did they carve alternative geographies etc we can talk more about that later on sure and i would just like to i mean correct me if i'm wrong but um the rebirth of this communist uh, insurgency as a Maoist one very much tracks with what's happening internationally with the, say, the Sino-Soviet split. And um, specifically, I would imagine um, Mao's, uh, Mao Zedong thought, which uh, centers the peasantry, which, it, tell me if I'm wrong, it Absolutely. would make more sense in yeah. the Philippines than, say, a Marxist-Leninist proletarian. Uh, right. yeah. There's a lot of text around this, and in, if any of your listeners are interested to read this kind of text uh, from the Philippine socialist communist movement, I'm happy to kind of like point people sure. to, to references. But, um, you know, it's not like a, you're right, right? Yes, you're right. Oh, but thanks. The, <laughs> you're always right. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> no, the other, the other part of the equation is that obviously it's not like a dogmatic kind of like resurgence of a movement. Oh, yeah, they're reading Mao. You know, let's apply those theory in our kind of current conditions in the Philippines, right? Um, again, like I would always argue that the beauty of Marxism is that it's never dogmatic. 
right? That it's a living text, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be, right? I mean, people are dogmatic in their practices, right? But I wouldn't say that the, the theory itself of socialism and communism is dogmatic. It's a method of analysis exactly. that can be applied exactly. in different ways. Thank I'd you. say eternal science, actually. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it could be like a title of a movie or a podcast. The eternal yeah. science of the spotless mind. There's got to be an eternal science, this awful, tanky podcast. Oh, I'm <laughs> sure it exists. It must exist. Right, but I guess, like to again, like to kind of like add more information on that question, um, what's happening in the world... Uh, also shape how the new kind of communists in the Philippines post-1968 were thinking about a new movement, but also the internal dynamics of the older party, right, led people to realize that it's not working out for them. That and also the internal contradictions in the country, right? Now that um, the semi-colonial and um, like neo-colonial and semi-feudal, as they would claim it, um, situation of the mode of production in the Philippines demand sort of right demand a new way of looking at how they could emancipate people and Maoism provided that lens on how they could actually imagine that from you know um kind of like happening that makes a lot of sense someone wanna uh, so uh like in a lot of central america latin america and southeast asia you get these guerrilla insurgencies in the late 60s is when it starts? Absolutely, yeah. And it, 60s then peaked on 70s, right? Uh -huh. And then the wars happened in the 80s, right? Uh, I mean, like, the, the number of deaths kind of increased around the 80s, and that were the cases that were popular in the U.S., right? Yeah, so, I guess the most well-known one is the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. but there are many, uh, many others. But without skipping too much history, how do we go from this... Maoist communist insurgency in the Filipino countryside to the election of Rodrigo Duterte. Take us through uh, 50 years in uh, uh, bullet points. Right. A time space compression. <laughs> yeah. um, Spatial fix. Yeah, exactly. I think <laughs> one way of looking at it is that the election of Rodrigo Duterte in 2016 as the president of the Philippines and current president of the Philippines um, was really um, historic in many ways. And one of those ways is that uh, first he comes from a particular type of politicians or breed or group or clique of politicians because it's not from Manila. Right. He's not from the north of the country, which is Manila, all the way to Ilocos, where most of the Filipino politicians that dominated local politics or national politics are from, including the Marcuses. Right. So Duterte actually comes from Mindanao, which is the, the southernmost um, province and region and island in the country. It's um, We know Mindanao in, here in the U.S. because... Every time it shows up on our news feed, uh, we hear about ISIS or we hear about Islamic kind of militants, right? Or we hear like a travel ban going to the Philippines in relation to some conflict in Mindanao. Um, but Duterte comes from that region. So he's not really, um, well, he's portrayed as an outsider to the Philippine kind of like politics, sort of. I wouldn't call him as an outsider. He's an outsider of the, that kind of like northern clique. Um, as I would call it. Um, of he's no uh, Marcos. He's no Marcos, definitely. Um, he's an outsider in a way that he doesn't have that kind of political dynasty that other kind of families or politicians had. And his wife doesn't have as many shoes. Exactly. Oh, man. Did I jump us all the way over Marcos? I'm sorry. 
Oh yeah, why did I do that? Uh, no, we all did that to ourselves. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, jump back a little bit in history. Um, Let's just do a little Marcos. Sure, yeah. Because that's do a pretty, little important, Marcus pretty important. Obviously, history. they're still alive. Well, Ferdinand is kind of like semi-alive. Still? Damn. We we uh, got George H.W. Bush yesterday, and Marcos is still Right, uh, exactly. I think George W. Bush like had a Twitter account. <laughs> anyway, I saw um, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You saw that too. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so like, okay, so 1968, the Communist Party of the Philippines was reborn right and it's now a very um specifically kind of maoist kind of movement um ferdinand marcus was the president back then he started in the late 50s and he used that kind of reborn rebirth of the communist movement and the communist insurgency uh post-1968 as a basis for the declaration of martial law in the country right again like this kind of communist scare so he used that to legitimize um, dicta his dictatorship and his cronyism, corruption, all the shoe fetish, <laughs> or maybe he had the fetish. I don't yeah. know who had the oh, fetish. That's actually a really right? good question. Maybe was it's it? not really Imelda was like obsessed with the shoes. <laughs> you know, like it's not. Ba you know, maybe it's not really her. Maybe it's Ferdinand. Everybody's looking for the P tape. I want to see the uh, crushing tape of uh, Marcos. Mm, the trampling tape. The trampling tape. Yeah. <laughs> right, um, like smelling all this like shoes, or like oh, here's a memory foam sole. Oh, Vibram, <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> I love it. Steel toe. <laughs> That's getting pro right there. Right. Yeah. That's Leather. Like, <laughs> anyway. Anyway, yes. Oh my God. Moving forward. We're so turned on by this shoe fetish of um, mm -hmm. the Marcus. Guys, it's getting hot in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Um, take off my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Anyway, so okay, so I was just like thinking in my head, I caught my, my myself thinking about what's the relationship between podiatrist and podcast. <laughs> oh my god, a podiatrist you know? oh podcast god. would be the most boring, <laughs> fucking. There's probably content. fifteen of them. I know. There probably <laughs> there's probably a podiatrist <laughs> podcast <laughs> that makes like four times as right. much money as ours. <laughs> we <laughs> need like, more feet like, in this podcast. Like they <laughs> like they need more money, you know. Yeah, they're That's doctors already. I know. I'm sorry. Go on. All right. Anyway, <laughs> cool. Whatever happened. So anyway, Marcuses. Yeah. So Marcuses. They use communism to basically legitimize the dictatorship, and then it lasted for 20 years. How's that? Right. Mm. So um, and then Marcus was uh, kind of ousted by this kind of people power revolution. Right. That the, the first of its kind in Asia. Um, pre obviously preoccupied, but kind of like this kind of um wave of publics right kind of coming out to the streets to demand a change in the regime and that captured a lot of this fantasy and imagination of americans like oh my god liberal democracy is coming to asia um that people are really kind of standing up for their kind of sovereign rights as a as a people and don't want dictatorship anymore but obviously there's like um a couple of things to think about there right like the the, the ouster of Ferdinand Marcus as a dictatorship and the end of the dictatorship actually was also fueled largely by the communist insurgency, right? Because there was a, a, a very clear threat to the state and to the military by this armed insurgency that has already, you know, took its, took its roots in the archipelago and really mobilized a large of people, especially in the countryside, to take up arms against the fascist um, authoritarian uh, rule in the country that really kind of weakened the military and later on weakened 
the the, the dictatorial uh, regime, right? And where did the U.S. position themselves mm. in this kind of ouster? Mm. What was the Kissinger take on it? Right. So <laughs> what did they what did they do? Um, the U.S. actually offered Marcus and his family exile to where? Ooh. Um, uh, a shoe store, Payless. No, no, I don't know where. Hawaii. Oh, yes, yes. So they fled to Hawaii. Um, the one that became a state, unlike right, the Philippines. Exactly. So they fled to Hawaii on like an aircraft that was actually allegedly, I'm not really sure yet, but I think it was provided by the U.S. Um, to uh, fly them over to Hawaii. Um, and that's that's where they live. And they say the U.S. government doesn't do good things around the world. No, yeah, gives I mean, free flights. Yeah, to they people. they give sanctuaries yeah. to dictatorship. Really we nice. know that, right? Not not migrants from Central America. No, definitely but, uh, not. Marcos yeah. exactly. Anyway, so but there was um, a comeback, right? So um, the Ferdinand Marcos passed away, died, you know, um, in exile, and um, the new president, a widow, actually of an, a senate. Um, opposition leader named Ninoy Aquino, uh, his um, his widow uh, Corazon Aquino, later on became the the president. Right after that um, ouster of the dictator, so Cori, Corazon Aquino or Cori Aquino also captured the imagination of many Americans, and so he was this kind of icon um, again uh, of liberal democracy. Uh, in Southeast Asia, in the Philippines, and and she was just terrible. <laughs> she was like a landlord, kind of, you know, whatever. Oh, yes, oh. queen. Yeah. Yes, uh, yeah. Landlord. She literally she leaned into it. Yeah, she kind of like came to office in 1986 after this People Power Revolution, etc. And then she like declared total war mm. against the peasants in 1987. Ever think your landlord doesn't everyone. have enough control over your life? <laughs> I know, that's true. Um, it's crazy how uh, democracy always seems to go along with capitalism in these scenarios. Absolutely, exactly. Um, and again, like this is also, uh, you know, like the dynamics here are also just um, local politics, right? Like um, the landlord ruling class with like the bourgeoisie, the local bourgeoisie and uh, whatever corporate kind of bourgeoisie um are conniving right to kind of govern the country etc but anyway so fast forward to different regimes after Corazon Aquino uh, a female president named Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo became uh, the next president after Estrada was impeached and she was also hella bad right wow. she institutionalized another kind of war against insurgents um used 9/11 actually like as a as a rational to institutionalize anti-communist um labeled as anti-terrorist kind of um, counterinsurgency wow so this this insurgency has been going on for a long time at this 50 point. years damn um this year actually is they the don't quit year yeah and it's something to think about i think i think for us here in the u.s to think about how come this kind of you know, like Maoist, kind of like armed insurgencies. Talk about protracted. Protracted, kind of like forever kind of war, right? Um, that never ends. And I think it's like the longest ongoing Maoist insurgency uh, in the world. Um, Sorry, Naxalites. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting to think about it. But like like most Maoist insurgencies, it, it took a sharp decline in the 2000s, right? Uh was is that because of the counter terror campaign? Yes, definitely. There were a lot of extrajudicial assassinations post nine eleven that was also funded by the U.S. military and counterinsurgency intelligence kind of funding. Um, so that happened too. And then after that, then we have Rodrigo Duterte. That's Rodrigo oh, Duterte. We was made it to our hero. Yes. Yeah, and so now, yeah, just like going back to that kind of story <laughs> that he's kind of like this new outsider kind of politician that 
took over, um, kind of like, you know, became so popular and really elected by the majority uh, of the voters in 2016. And what's really interesting to think about here is that we have in Rodrigo Duterte what we would call a populist leader, right? Um, kind of very Trumpian, kind of like, um, or, you know, a politician that kind of uh, represents kind of like the interests of the poor people who are fed up right with the traditional ruling elite like right? modi and in india or something like exactly that. right so then you have this kind of person but also the other part of the equation why he why he also was popular and why he also won was that he first he also kind of really articulated socialist ideas hmm. right like hmm. during his campaign right um that i think resonated with a lot of people who have heard this same language in the last 50 years of Maoist insurgency in the countryside, right? So I think there was this kind of like merging of what Duterte was saying during his campaign to what the people from the periphery have also been um, aspiring for through this Maoist insurgency. So I think that's one. And then the second factor here is that the Communist Party, I think, and the Maoist insurgency as well, um, the Maoist movement as well, kind of really help set up right the infrastructure to how um, Duterte won the election in terms of uh, supporting him discreetly to the public that supported the Maoist insurgency. So we think of him as a very right-wing figure. Um, it, was there anything real about his uh, sort of uh, socialist rhetoric or was it all just campaign promises? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I actually wrote a, a paper. Yuck. <laughs> I don't like saying that. I wrote a paper. Like, there's a paper for everything. Ew, homework. <laughs> Gross. Cool. <laughs> no, I actually, um, um, you know, I wrote this text that, um, you know, a friend, uh, friend invited me to write for this populist book that came out um, a few months ago, but it didn't make the cut um, because uh. I think they, they thought it was too... Maoist oh, wow. <laughs> of a wow. reading. I don't know. I thought you were going to say um, it was too pro Duterte. Oh no, no. But I was <laughs> arguing in that, and this is part of the presentation that you that Andy mm -hmm. saw in Woodbine. I think that was 2016, Andy. I'm not really sure. I think that's like around okay. 2016. Yeah, um, when I gave this presentation at Woodbine, um, thinking about populism, but I was making this kind of argument that how Duterte won the election was not just strictly because of his right populist kind of language, but also it was a combination or the merging of right populism, his populism, but also left populism, mm -hmm. the Maoist kind of like populist kind of rhetoric and program that somehow merged, right, that led mm -hmm. to this victory of Duterte. And I could explain that in detail later on um, because what I'm trying to say in that presentation and this was like in early 2016 when he just won, right? And obviously things have changed now in the last two years of his term, and we can talk about that later on. But when he f just won the elections in 2016, the left was also very kind of um, celebra celebrating that victory, right? Um, and to answer uh, Jamie's question about that is, Rodrigo Duterte, when he was campaigning, was really talking and representing and claiming himself to be a socialist a potentially first socialist president of the country. He said, I'm a socialist, I'm not a communist. So he's making that distinction. Um, and while others would say that's just rhetoric and propaganda, like political campaigning, um, the Maoists would say that there is actual evidence to that because Rodrigo Duterte was been like a long time governor and politician of this region in Mindanao, of this province in Mindanao. 
that was um, that is kind of another stronghold of the Maoists in the country. Um, the Maoists, meaning the Maoist movement and the Communist Party and the insurgent army, actually have a um, a relationship with Duterte even before he declared candidacy, mm. and that relationship is you know, what the, the left would say, a united front relationship, right? Because Duterte has been a governor of this island, of this province, uh, of this region in, in the south of the Philippines. The left and the Maoist movement and him have this kind of like agreement, right? A strategic and tactical alliance wherein Duterte would actually help out the Maoists. Mm. So every time there's like, um, like the Maoists would like arrest military or police officers, and they would release them out of humanitarian grounds, Duterte would facilitate the meeting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Right? Mm -hmm. And Duterte would, you know, say good things about this movement, say good things about the humanitarian process. Wow. He would never really mm -hmm. kind of like, um, kind of heavily criticize the Maoist movement. It's like a co-optation sort of situation? Or maybe, like, I was going to ask, like, are there commonalities in Maoist philosophy and more like a right-wing philosophy that... I don't want to say horseshoe theory, but like there are definitely certain more authoritarian strains of communism that might lend themselves better to uh, right wing authoritarianism than others. Like I'm also thinking about this uh, picture I saw of a Russian guy with a tattoo of fucking Stalin on one side of his chest and Putin on the other, right. like that kind of thing. <clears throat> Yeah, um, I think, yeah, definitely we can like read the situation in the Philippines as this, again, like kind of like um, merging, right? Uh, like third a, position. A third, third position, position yeah. right? But I think for the Maoists, um, just from the text that I've read that they've released over the years under Duterte, that my reading is that they've been just deploying this kind of dual tactics with Duterte, right? They would use him if he is useful to them and they would criticize him if he is going against what the agreement, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think the Maoists in the Philippines would somehow associate themselves or their radical agenda and associate that with, say, like the author authoritarian agenda of even the Marcuses before or the Duterte now. But unlike in the past, they're actually a uh, pressure group. It seems like, right? Uh, you know, act an actual player in the Duterte uh, era. Yes, exactly. Um, but I think what's what's interesting for me, right? What what's interesting for me with this kind of relationship with the, between the Maoists and Duterte was that uh, things changed, right? Um, when Duterte uh, started the drugs, um, the killings against oh um, yeah, the that thing. Users, right? So so that happened immediately months after, right? But before he actually did that. Uh, he made this kind of really interesting thing that hasn't really happened in, in the Philippine uh, electoral politics before. Right after his election, he invited um, the Communist Party to actually submit a list of names uh, to him that he could choose from to appoint as secretaries of particular departments wow. under his government. Mm. So no precedence before yeah, has yeah. done that. That kind of like really legitimize the insurgency and legitimize this kind of mm. um, non-legal kind of shadowy state, right, mm. of the insurgents. And 
And so that was another kind of bonus points for the Mavis, mm. right? That kind of like made them really support Duterte at the beginning. Can I can I ask you? Maybe it's a stupid or a simple question, but what is this relationship between um, like armed? Um, I don't want to say peasants, but like armed rural people uh, that have these autonomous, you know, Maoist zones, and um, I guess a leadership that can sit down with Duterte. Is there like a countryside element, and then there's a communist party leadership in the cities, or how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. I think. Oh, the, it was good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think because uh, when we think in in our imaginations, right, like a Maoist movement, is this kind of like peasants in their peasant wardrobe with red flags marching ar- along rice fields collectivizing farm work etc and carrying arms right um i think in the philippine situation uh because it's also been going on for five decades right the infrastructure is more complex than that right so i think from my research the way i would understand it um the maoist movement quote-unquote maoist movement is um, broken down into three particular actors. So one is the Communist Party, which is the Vanguard Party, right? Led by party members, um, obviously. And then you have what they call the New People's Army, which is this the insurgent group, the armed group, right? These are peasants and intellectuals from the cities mm. and workers from the cities and lumpen proletariat from the cities who would take up arms, who would decide to take up arms and join the New People's Army to basically implement the program of the Communist Party, which is meaning, uh, which means um, building democratic, uh, what do you call that? How do they call them? Democratic uh, organs of political power or something like that, right? Very Maoist kind of language. Um, So the role of the New People's Army under the guidance of the Communist Party of the Philippines would go to this far-flung kind of mountainous and rural areas because that's where the majority of the people are and that's where the, uh, what do you call this, the least hold of power is, right? Because they can somehow relatively operate autonomously because the state is invisible somehow or absent, right? Mm-hmm. In those areas geographically, that they could build that demogra- democratic socialist power by organizing uh, farmers, indigenous peoples, etc., right? Mm. And then building that kind of socialist kind of infrastructure that then would later on occupy the cities. Mm. A dual power in the countryside. Exactly, right? And then you have the third actor, which is called the National Democratic Front of the Philippines, which is. This kind of alliance or united, fr- yeah, it's a united front. Uh, it's a united front of members of the Communist Party, leaders of the New People's Army, and also this kind of radical communist sections of the rest of the Filipino publics that are sympathetic to this socialist cause, including whatever, um, professionals, you know, including um, rich people, right, middle class, etc. So to answer your question, um, the way I think it works is that you have this kind of countryside-based leadership, um, and then you have this kind of urban-based leadership. Mm. And then you have the exiled leadership, because the founding member and some of the key leaders of the Communist Party were exiled, actually, in the Netherlands, right? Um, And that section of the leadership, the exiled leadership, are the ones actually um, leading the negotiations with the state. Mm, interesting. Yeah. 
So anyway, so that's the kind of like spatial layout of the power of the Maoists. Um, and then thinking through that, thinking about that in relation to say Duterte, um, I think what happened to Duterte is that what's interesting to think about with, with Duterte is that when he made that offer to the Communist Party to nominate or submit list of names, it's really recognizing and legitimizing the sovereignty of this kind of shadow government of the communist, um, and then also kind of opening up sort of like the, the liberal democratic kind of elitist kind of form of the state to this potential kind of rogue elements, right? Mm. Um, but again, for the Maoist movement, they saw that as a really good opportunity, right? They feel that people, um, they didn't nominate kind of particular guerrilla leaders. They nominated uh, legal personalities like mm. academics, lawyers, who are critical, uh, who are sympathetic to the socialist movement, communist movement in the Philippines to become secretaries of, say, the Department of Labor, Department of Agriculture, the National Poverty Commission, right? And, and Duterte appointed them. Wow. The, fa the only thing is that they never survived the congressional appointment. Oh, they got shot down they by got Congress. Shot down. Oh, wow. Yeah. But they, they are alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but they, they served for a couple of months, even a year, I think. Um, but they mm. just didn't get through the, of course, the traditional cliques. Yeah, right? sure. Well, the landlords or whatever. They're alive because they weren't drug dealers. Exactly. They'd also been drug dealers. They would never would have made it. So, Duterte, uh, there was this initial enthusiasm amongst the left that Duterte might maybe, you know, end this war, give some legitimacy to the socialist movement. Uh, in these autonomous areas, uh, but very quickly he asserts himself as an authoritarian, even calling himself a fascist at one point. Um, but nonetheless, he's uh, sort of outside of the uh, traditional political elite in the Philippines. He was the mayor of Davao. Davao yeah. uh, he uh, he speaks uh, what's what's the language he speaks? Tagalog? Cebuano, oh, so which yeah. is like a dialect in the south. It's a major dia it's a major language in the Philippines, but it's definitely not Tagalog or mm. Ilocano, mm. which is spoken in the north. So he's this um, new kind of political figure in the Philippines. Uh, at, but at, but part of his populism, it didn't run contrary to his populism, but part of it was that he wanted to kill drug dealers and criminals, which is... Um, and he did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, many, many times. Yeah. <laughs> Something oh God, that I think... That. Uh, especially in, in Brazil with Bolsonaro, mm. uh, we kind of underplay as an element of populism is anti-crime, mm. um, even this kind of like winking anti-corruption. Uh, so how did that element, that very right-wing uh, law and order element mm. of his populism take over? Mm. Yeah, that's a good uh, question as well because, um, you know, like he immediately uh, institutionalized this, right? Right after his election. While he's doing these promises and kind of like possible radical opening with the left he's also thinking about this kind of social cleansing and using um the war on drugs as uh, a platform to do this that's fascinating because you said earlier they use the war on terror mm -hmm. so it seems like you know whatever particular i don't know um, law and order issue or security issue arises it can be used often as an excuse to implement what you say social cleansing or eliminating uh, surplus populations or just tamping down on any sort of uh, popular movement or something oh. of that sort and it seems like these things are largely coming from the u.s right yeah so i think um one approach that we can really kind of think about is like how the u.s the u.s military the u.s um you know, foreign aid, military aid to the Philippines are really fueling these policies, 
right? Um, and also kind of really drawing upon the experiences of the U.S. in its war on drugs. So I think in the Philippines, the situation is that um, definitely like Duterte uh, really saw the need and saw it as a very popular kind of policy, right? To actually, again, use fear um, as a disciplining mechanism of the public, using fear and using this idea that um, we need to kind of cleanse the society from this kind of rogue and lumpenic elements, right, in the cities. Um, and and that, took in, that took many shapes, right? Like, obviously Duterte never admitted, right, somehow that he has a direct kind of order right to kill all these drug users or suspected drug users and pushers but in many of his statements uh, we could actually really extract from his statements that this is his policy right um so now like the figures are between i don't know like twelve thousand to twenty thousand or more right, depending on who you ask the government thinks it's around five thousand right and another element to this too is that it's not just the state but they've actually managed to create vigilante groups right it's like right yeah. exactly and so um it, you know there were cases where in it's the police or members of the police who would just um arrest quote-unquote arrest or just like you know push the door and come to your house and shoot you right or there would be this vigilantes riding in motorcycles in the dark um no identification whatever and then would just shoot people right and it all started with like this kind of um lists right like people would spy on each other and local politicians or local community politicians or elected officials plus the police would would come up or generate lists right intelligence lists of who in the neighborhood is a drug user or a drug pusher right wow. and so people would step up right and surrender themselves to the police and tell like oh i'm not you know i'm in the list but you know like you know i'm just going to stop it whatever so people did that and some people who did that were also killed right and some people who didn't even you know were not even users like this uh young kid who was 17 years old named kian de los santos a high school student an honor student was just outside and he was shot to death, right? And and many others, right? Many, many others, women, you know, men, everybody, right? There's there's like a wide range of demographics kind of like who have been victimized and rendered dead, right, by this policy. And you know, like again, we can think of it as a more kind of social cleansing, but also again like what you what, what Sean said, like in terms of like elimination, right, of this kind of surplus populations, right? And we know that you know, even if we sort of like eliminate all kind of like poor drug users or drug pushers, we know that among the rich and kind of like elite sections of population who use this kind of drugs are spared from that, mm. right? And Sounds how, familiar. Right, and how do they get that privilege of being actually being able to avoid that kind of elimination, right? Um, well, the United States has got the uh, crack to cocaine ratio all the way down to 1 to 18 mm. from what it used oh, to be. So there's progress over here as right. well. So at this point in time, not a lot of communist support Duterte, I'm going to guess, uh, seeing as he called himself a fascist and vowed to kill the last uh, 5,000 communists. Uh, yeah, Buyer, buyer's like, remorse. <laughs> what, how, how did they react to him? Like, when did they turn on him? And like, I don't want to blame the victim, but is there anything about Maoism 
that might have made this uh, more possible Spicy. than, or, say, I don't know, a more anti-authoritarian form of communism. Or, or to be more generous, uh, the specific form that Maoism took in, uh, in the Philippines. Yeah. Right. Well, the way I would think about the tipping point for the Maoists, uh, a couple of things, right? And one of that is really um, Duterte also offered to, be, to resume the peace negotiations with the Maoists, right? That have been delayed, um, postponed, or canceled, unilaterally canceled by previous administrations. And for the Maoists, for the Maoist leaders, the peace process is a very important arena of struggle because it allows them to really legitimize their existence. Because if you engage in a peace process, and this is what happened with the Zapatistas, with the FARC, right? There's a, there's a certain level of legitimacy right if the state if the ruling state really engages mm -hmm. on like in a, in, an, in an agreement with an insurgent actor and so the the maoist leadership really um is is really interested in pursuing these peace negotiations with duterte for that reason but also for the reason of um, really institutionalizing some political economic and cultural and military reforms that the maoists have been pushing uh, forward uh, in this peace negotiations, right? So they were really supporting Duterte because they thought under Duterte they could secure a peace deal. I think that's the major thing here. But when Duterte um, dropped out of the peace agreement, this was even when the drug war on drugs are happening and when the communists um, appointed kind of secretaries are not going through Congress, the communist movement are still like, saying good things about Duterte, right? But when Duterte really kind of backed out from the peace negotiations, that was really the tipping point for the Maoists to really kind of drop the kind of like alliance or relationship or whatever kind of partnership or agreement with Duterte. And so that was really the, I think, um, the main reason for the Maoist leadership to now shift their... Um, behavior or attitude toward Duterte from one of uh, critical support to critical distance to now really just a, like a um, critique, yeah. you know? So their support for him was more uh, practical, would you exactly. say, than anything very ideological? Very strategic or less than ideological. I think um, to give credit to the Maoist uh, leadership and to the Maoist movement, you know, they've studied this society for 50 years, right? So they know the ins and outs of this. They're not like newbie kind of amateur kind of like insurgents who are kind of still experimenting on their methods they're, they're not right. the they're florida not communist front right they're yeah. not they're not the shining path either right right yeah. so they're a little bit very a little bit very kind of, they're very <laughs> kind of sophisticated i think in the way they analyze and approach politics in the philippines and also abroad and so that one and so i think um you know, Duterte also was pissed with the communists, right? They, he was really pissed with the communists because when they started speaking against him, then it became like a world war, right? He, he declared he wants to now kill the communists like what he does with the drug users, mm. right? That's one. And the second statement, he said he wanted indigenous people to kill the communist insurgents and, and he'll give them uh, $40 or something <laughs> like that per head, wow, <laughs> you man. know, and then he also said he ordered the military, the Philippine military troops to 
kill communist women and shoot them in their vaginas. Oh my Jesus. god! Right. Christ. So he said all these things. Right. Um, when you know the tensions between the Maoist movement again. Right. Like, this is in two years. And right? I thought I thought it was bad when he told when he said in the, in a press conference that like he had sex with Obama's mother or something like that. What, did he say something? No, like he that? said something like Obama was like a son of a bitch or something uh, like that. No, that's um, not as bad as what I thought it right, was. Right, but right. no, that's that's all fucking completely horrific. Yeah, he also bragged about murdering drug dealers. Yeah. Uh, exactly. r- real quick before we segue out and of this. And drug users. Um, is the drugs they're talking about are amphetamines? Is that correct? Mostly, is there a real drug problem there in the Philippines or is this manufactured? Yeah, there are. Um, there is definitely. Like, if you ask, uh, say, like Department of Health in the Philippines, you know, um, there is a, there is a claim and some like research to back it up that there is kind of an ongoing uh, drug issue in the in the Philippines in the country, um, you know, in terms of usage and stuff like that and social consequences of that. But I would say that obviously the, the response of the state to this kind of issue was just really off, you know, like totally like uncalled in terms of like um, it's moral and ethical and humanitarian. Uh, I would say I would agree. Right. Um, yeah. So I think the other thing that I also just want to want your listeners to think about is really, um, you know, like this kind of complicated relationships of insurgent movements like the Maoists in the Philippines and and what we can actually really kind of learn from this kind of practices in dealing with populist regimes, right? And this really kind of resonates with many countries now. Like, you know, like the the paper that I wrote about left and right-wing populism merging and giving us a Duterte situation, I think allows us to think about how socialist movements or left-wing, left populist movements or movements that claim to represent poor people, right? Like what kind of strategies or approaches um, we can think about when we're dealing with populist right-wing or left-wing populist politicians that are on the rise, right? Because it's so easy to fall into that kind of like, oh yeah, let's support this populist leader because it captures the imagination of the people, but it also kind of like resonates some of our, or amplifies some of our radical program, right? And then we get ourselves into this mess, Right. So, but I don't have any answer in terms of like, well, what could have been done? You know, there's no answer, right? So, it sounds like the the Maoists uh, gambled on uh, interacting uh, with the state, and uh, they lost. But it was based on, you know, an actual, real, practical events, right? Like they, there might have been a chance that they had been, uh, you know, been able to enter the government, and uh, it just went the wrong way for them. Absolutely. And also it's rooted upon historical analysis, right? right? It's not like they randomly just like, oh, yes, you know, like saw it on Twitter and then they supported Duterte, you know. That's how I do most of my politics. <laughs> when I see it on Twitter, I just go for Don't it. Don't we all? <laughs> yeah, the, the discussion of populism is, is really fascinating. And uh, at the same time, the, something we didn't even talk about is that there's this Islamist insurrection in, in the, the South. ISIS. Yeah, uh, some of them calling themselves ISIS. But it's, it's, it's been like an ongoing um Islamic versus the Filipino state. And what's interesting with that, just to to kind of like just gesture to this um, thing that I'm also interested in, like the the U.S. actually um, labeled and listed the Communist Party of the Philippines and New People's Army as foreign terrorist organizations, (sighs) but did not list the Islamic organizations Mm. that are also armed, right? So post 9-11, that's kind of like a paradox. (laughs) Like why would you not list the Muslims, which is like the, the poster 
people. <laughs> oh, I just oh, forgot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I think there was like there a clear... some Machiavellian shit yeah, that yeah. we'd all have to think about right, to, right. to figure anyway. that out. Are they more scared of, uh, you know, a small Islamic terrorist group in Philippines that probably can't hurt U.S. interests, or are they more concerned about a Maoist communist insurgency that could really damage capitalist and American interests? That's like, uh, I don't know. That's yeah, that's one a, approach, you know. and, and one approach is really... Um, the U.S. government also just follows what the Philippine government is requiring them to do, uh. right? That the Philippine government feels the threat not from the Islamic um, insurgents, but from the communist insurgents, right? So you're saying that the Philippine lobby they runs did. U.S. They the did. U.S. government. It, we're actually a Philippine-occupied government here in the United States. Exactly. Oh, interesting. A pog or a pog? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, obviously there's a, a lot to talk about there, um, but I want to get to your your theory of insurgent peace. Um, oh wow, cool! It's a theory. I, thank you. Ooh, no, your, it's a your concept, own theory. No, no, you can call it a theory. It's fine. Yeah. Um, it's an essay uh, that was, it's an article that's published uh, on a journal called Geopolitics. Okay. And um, what I'm thinking about in this particular research is, again, this question of, you know, when we think about peace uh, as a concept, right, we mainly, many of us think about the UN and U.S. military intervention and U.S. kind of liberal democratic peacekeeping interventions, right? Um, and the notion of peace as this kind of like absence of violence and a final kind of moment in a long history of violence or armed conflict, right? These are like the dominant theories of peace that we know. Um, but I wanted to kind of think about peace away from those kind of... Um, uh, frameworks and really try to think about peace as a process that could exist within spaces of violence, right? That we could actually think of peace as peaceful everyday features in a, in a context of an ongoing violence or ongoing war. And why am I thinking about this, right? Mainly because I'm interested with this kind of social movements that are insurgent in nature and that are also happening in decades, like for decades, right? Like ongoing people's protracted war or long histories of armed insurgencies, right? And I was really, I'm particularly curious of like how do civilian communities, right? Quote unquote civilian communities, meaning non-combatants and who are not members of the insurgent movements themselves, but are entangled within the social movements, right? How do they actually see their features, right? Um, away from this armed violence. Because non, not all of them would su subscribe to the idea of arming themselves and joining um, an armed revolution. Some of them would be sympathetic to the idea, but some of them would be just so-so, right? Um, and would just want to live their lives but obviously also don't want to support counterinsurgency efforts, right? So I wanted to think within that space, kind of like because of the phenomenon of long-term, protracted, decades-long armed insurgencies that I think will continue, and we might see a no-victory scenario, that it will just go on, right? Um, that it will just go on. Then I, would, I really want to think about how those communities entangled in that kind of geographic um, and temporal space, right? See themselves as a, as a community. And so peace for me is a good kind of framework and concept to think about in that space. And what I really want to think with the notion of insurgent peace is that peace is possible first outside state-centric 
mechanisms. Ooh, I like that. Go on. Right. Um, that first, when we think of peace, it's always a state project. It has to be legitimized, designed by people in the offices, right, in the State Department or the UN or the USAID and other kind of like NGOs, and then implemented in local like, local communities that are impacted by armed conflicts, right? So I think I want to think about peace as coming outside that kind of framework and that kind of actors. And then the second thing that I want to think about with the notion of insurgent peace is that peace is also possible from the practices of civilian communities that are not necessarily part of the non-state actors as well. Right. So let's get a little bit more specific here, because um, previously we talked about uh, Jamie and Sean's visit to Oventic and Chiapas. Um, and, and your paper uh, stays very close on a community called Sagada. Is that I'm saying that right? Yes. Uh, so tell us about this place and what life is like there. So Sagada is a municipality in the province called Mountain Province. That was mm. <laughs> the Americans coined the term mm. um, because it was a mountainous region. Uh, Story chucks it out. <laughs> <laughs> so people identify there as um, in indigenous peoples. And in the Philippines, um, indigeneity is marked by this kind of um, historical uh, identity wherein like, they were not effectively, quote-unquote, effectively colonized by the West. That's why they're indigenous. Um, that they're able to retain kind of indigenous or traditional kind of systems, uh, political, economic, and cultural systems, etc. So Sagada, again, like this municipality in the Cordillera Autonomous Administrative Region, sorry. Uh, it's like an indigenous region in the northern part of the Philippines. And again, like back in the 60s, uh, early 70s, right, during the dictatorship, it was a stronghold of Maoists, right? Um, and uh, by 1988, they um, they declared their community as a demilitarized area, as what they would call it, um, and demanded like a, a ban on the entry of both the Philippine military and the members of the New People's Army. And that really kind of was p partly because of the militarization of the community as well in response to insurgency. The military um, battalions occupied the community and committed atrocities um, to the public, right? Like uh, they killed three children, uh, etc. Um, they militarized a lot of the communities um, and in indigenous kind of communities there. Uh, and part of that, the community gathered and kind of protested against these atrocities and demanded uh, that their um, their communities be spared from the armed conflict, and they called it a demilitarized zone. And so, later on, the civil society in Manila uh, NGOs labeled it as a peace zone hmm. or a zone of peace. Um, and then the community somehow like adopted that term, and so they would identify now as a peace zone, still kind of like within the same framework that they don't want to have the both rebels and military entering their communities. Um, and while the literature on peace zones actually uh, globally identifies Sagada as this kind of best practice model because it was you know led by the indigenous community, it was grassroots rather than the UN declaring it a peace zone or NGO declaring it a peace zone. Uh, I think the common representations and popular understanding of the P-Zone in Sagada is that it's a static space mm. that is really exclusively kind of like demilitarized, right? And in my research in Sagada, um, I found out that it's not true. Hmm. The military would come and go, and the, the rebels would also come and go, right? And 
the the maintenance of the peace zone is what I was really interested in in understanding. It's like how do they actually then legitimize the peace zone, right? And and what I found out with my research and interviews with the people in Sagada is that it really relies upon their daily work of constant negotiations hmm. with both armed actors, mm. right? And so now for me, that allowed me to kind of think about peace, not just this kind of like end product of a long peace agreement mm. or a long process after that happens after violence, but actually could happen, right? And is happening even within existing contexts of armed violence. Oh, that's fascinating. It's, it's a tension, yeah. right? Like... Even in, I mean, I'm thinking about the uh, Zapatista towns in Chiapas, but like peace per se, as we understand it, was not really an option for them because if they had not taken up arms, if they had not fought for themselves, or if they had just surrendered to the Mexican government, they would have been wiped out essentially, or at least, you know, as they knew themselves to be. And that happened to lots and lots of other indigenous people in Mexico. So the idea that you can just uh, stop fighting or like it's it's the rebels who are causing the violence mm. in the first place is uh, it's really bullshit. And e even now, like if they did not have such tight control over who can come into their communities um, and the amount of trade that they do with the outside world, et cetera, et cetera, if they didn't have those guys with guns in towers, you know, keeping watch that might look like a violent thing to some naive observer mm. but that's maintaining the space in which these people get to have peace and security and maintain their way of life right absolutely and i'm really fascinated with that because um, again like thinking about peace as an active process right and with sagada and the way i conceptualize this notion of insurgent peace is that at least in Sagada, in the context of Sagada, um, it is really um, done through, like this notion of insurgent peace is done through three things, right, that I've observed from them. Number one, the first thing is like, really it requires some sort of like internal norms within this community, right? Like they have a certain kind of like agreement or a set of values or whatever that they think the community should aspire for, right? And that kind of like set of internal norms allows, allows the people, allow the people to really institutionalize and legitimize this ban against violence, right? And for, for the indigenous peoples in Sagada, this is, uh, these are like the set of internal indigenous norms that they have, the, the social taboos, right? The taboos against violence, against killing each other, right? Against spying on each other. So these norms really allows them, allow them to, to confront the state, to confront the non-state actor, telling them, hey, you can do that in our communities. We're not necessarily against you or for you. Some of us are, some of us are not. But these are the norms in this community and you have to respect that, right? So that's one. And then the second thing that I found out as well is like, obviously, we could have internal norms, but who fucking would care about these <laughs> norms, right? Like, even if we like make placards or like speak in front, speak to power about these norms, why would they even listen to us, right? And what I found out in Sagada is that it's not only norms, but this kind of like reframing of sovereignty, um, away from this kind of like quote-unquote autonomous notions of sovereignty, right? That they're kind of like autonomous people or autonomous indigenous community separate or isolated from or independent of the state or the non-state actor. What I'm arguing is actually they're actually interdependent, right? They're woven into this kind of matrix of power mm. for them to actually legitimize 
this demilitarized geographic area. That they are actually are able to reframe the matrix of power in a way that they could actually um, negotiate and be heard, right, and recognized by both the state and the rebels. And so really thinking about peace as autonomy, but not as independent of power mm. or dominant power, but actually interdependent of power, right? Mainly managing your relations to power. It's fascinating. And then the third thing that I want to add is really also like the kind of, the central kind of argument that I'm making with insurgent peace is this notion of refusal, right? Like how the ways in which the indigenous peoples in Sagada are able to refuse um, dominant power, right? So internal norms is one, interdependence is one, but also this kind of like demonstration and manifestation of refusal. And to have that ability to refuse something, I think signals a particular understanding and practice of autonomy and sovereignty, right? In order for you to be able to refuse something, you're somehow at par with the sovereign power, wow. right? And so for this tiny community of 11,000 people, in order for them to maintain this zone of peace that they're calling, um, again, it's not a static demilitarized zone. Like rebels and the military are there, they come and go, but the people maintain this kind of ongoing negotiations and um, refusal of violence, you know, within this context of insurgent peace. What really strikes me about that is, you know, we've been talking a lot about Maoism and we've been talking about uh, anti-war movements in the past. But um, I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of lessons in what you're talking about. The, the theory is fascinating to me. And um, it almost matches up with a lot of anarchist theory. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad. Right. Yeah. I, is that, I, I mean, is that fair to say? Like, yeah. do you think that there's some lessons there? Absolutely. For, and yeah. I think um, for me... Um, Particularly in the in the geog geographies of peace uh, studies and literature, a lot of uh, critical geographers and anarchist geographers are actually recovering some of the anarchist um, literature by Kropotkin, mm. right? All this literature, seeing like a state, right? right to think yeah. about um, to think about anarchism as this kind of future, right? Um, other critical geographers and anarchist geographers have already made the connection between anarchism and peace. Right, um, you know, and and that's something that I'm also interested in. But I'm also kind of want to make sure that my notion or theory or concept of insurgent peace is also rooted on everyday practice, mm. right? And it's also rooted in a particular geographic and historical moment, right? Um, coming from Sagada, for example, and thinking about insurgent peace as you know, like uh, as a way to actually think about peace as a critical phenomenon rather than like a passive or pacifist right um, or a idea. process by government actors exactly and, yeah. exactly um and then again like you know you um andy mentioned spaces say like uh the the, the caracol the caracoles in uh, chiapas and other areas in mexico led and sustained and maintained by the zapatistas right and then we have another zone that i'm also interested in uh in colombia which are the the they call it ETCR. They are, these are like zones of reintegration. And we can talk more a little bit about that later on. But, you know, like this kind of spaces that emerged out of the context of prolonged armed conflict and are now framed, created, reproduced, and maintained within the context of peace, right? Or peace agreements um, are fascinating for me because I think these are critical spaces or spaces that allows us, allow us to think critically about the notion of peace and 
imagined futures of communities that have a long experience of insurgencies, right? And how they see um, a, a, a possible peaceful future. So you've given us this very inspiring example of insurgent peace in this place. And obviously we all want peace. Um, it is a good thing to not have violence. Um, be that as it may, um, when we're talking about Maoists or we're talking about anarchists or just the left in general, uh, peace is important, but it's not the end goal, right? So how does this relate to you know the fact that you can have a demobilized zone in um, Colombia and you can have uh, Zapatista autonomous communities in Chiapas and you can have places in the Philippines you know, where this insurgent peace is happening and yet capitalist social relations remain. And still, um, they remain these sort of, uh, to use a geographical term, liminal areas, right? I mean, how does it relate ultimately to a larger sort of anti-capitalist, um, anti-state struggle? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I've been also interested in kind of understanding this kind of spaces, not only as alternative uh, geographic spaces or spaces of peace within context of armed conflict, but also as spaces that allow us to think of the imagined futures, radical futures of these particular communities, right? Uh, for example, in the Philippines, this kind of demilitarized zone or peace zone in Sagada allows us to think of how indigenous peoples are approaching this kind of like two dominant discourses of a liberal democratic state on the one hand, slash capitalism, right, slash market economy, and on the one hand, and the second, on the other hand, and on the other hand, <laughs> socialism, right? I'm even kind of like thinking through that, right? Like then you have this kind of third actor, the community, right, the indigenous community, and how do they respond? a very capitalist framework and a framework, a socialist framework that is critical of capitalism, right? In Mexico, for example, the Caracol, the Caracoles, this kind of autonomous zones maintained by the Zapatistas also allow us to think about how members and communities who are affiliated with Zapatistas uh, are also thinking about maintaining these spaces in relation to the Mexican state but also continuing on the revolutionary legacies that were um, institutionalized through land reform and also maintaining this kind of like uh, relations of production that benefit the poor peasant communities in Mexico, right? And then in, in, in Colombia, it's a different situation, right? Because in Colombia, this kind of zones that I'm interested in are existing still within the framework of the peace agreement and they are still heavily maintained by the state and the military, right? So even if it's populated by ex-FARC members, um, when, I've, when I talk to them uh, in Dabiba, which is one of this um, region in Antioquia, um, talking to like ex-FARC members, it's, a, it's almost like a refugee camp, right? Like, so these spaces that are kind of framed as peace spaces because it's demobilized and they've surrendered, they've laid down their arms and they are now contained within these spaces called ATCR um, to train themselves to reintegrate to the society somehow, um, are still maintained by the state. Right. So again, it's still kind of very um, explicitly serving the benefit and interests of the state. But what I want to signal is really this kind of spaces that are emerging out of armed conflict, legacies of armed conflicts and peace processes between the state and non-state actors are really critical spaces for us to think about this kind of liminal spaces, but also this kind of like liminal subjectivities, mm. right? That are that are emerging and produced and maintained by these long histories of insurgencies that we don't normally 
think about? So just as a final sort of broadening out kind of question, um, areas like this and situations like this seem so far away from our reality um, here in New York and for leftists around the world who are sort of grasping for how we could do something so impossible as create some sort of global proletarian socialist revolution. And the conditions are very different here, obviously, than they are in any of the places we've been talking about. But is there anything that the uh, international left or the pro-revolutionary left can kind of take from these struggles and use in the future? Or is it just too different? I think they are related, right? And also the notion of insurgent peace, I would I would argue, uh, could be applied to a broader international network of communists and socialists, right? And one way of doing that, I think, is really reframing our imaginations of socialism, anarchism, communism as peaceful movements, as movements for peace, right? If we rethink peace beyond the dominant understanding as absence of violence or state-centric project, right, or liberal democratic project, if we rethink peace as a radical process, right, um, then we could actually reframe socialism, anarchism, communism, other things, right, um, as peaceful movements. And one way, another way of doing that is really rethinking kind of like the urban context, right? We don't normally associate peace with, say, like Black Lives Matter, or we don't normally associate peace with, say, like the Standing Rock um, struggle, right? Um, but for me, those are peaceful movements. Those are movements for peace in, in, the co- in the notion of insurgent peace, right? That we require this kind of reframing of power, that we, it requires us to really kind of reconfigure how we relate to dominant power, but also strengthen our ability to refuse dominant power, right? And kind of imagine uh, an everyday kind of peaceful future in the context of ongoing structural, symbolic, uh, physical power, uh, violence, sorry. Yeah. And if you define peace as freedom from violence, like we have to overthrow capitalism because the status quo is one of violence, domination, oppression, and brutality, right? Not to mention the connection between uh, capitalist development and expansion and literal war, right? Absolutely. Right. Exactly. And I, I think maybe... A practical example of this, too, that we've seen recently, you mentioned Black Lives Matter. Um, You know, obviously the the big turn in that movement was a geographic one in Ferguson. And before that, we saw um, the occupation of space in the Occupy Wall Street movement. And then what was the third one that you mentioned? Um, The Standing Rock. Standing Rock, exactly. It was an encampment where people went to a place uh, in order... To, um, to protest and block physically, you know, the expansion. So I think that your situation of all of these different movements uh, and all of these different um, new modes of being uh, that are arising experimentally right now in this moment where capitalism crisis, uh, you know, the old world is dying, but the new one's yet to be born, um, situating that geographically d- does seem really important. And it does seem like something that's actually you know, relevant uh, at this moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like rethinking of them as as movements for peace. Yeah. Cool. Well, oh, yeah. uh, nerve, McCusp. I, uh, the uh, the phonetic version is harder for me to read. <laughs> yeah, it's also crossed out in the document. So McCuspak. Uh, well, 
Nerve Makazpak, thank you so much for being here. This is uh, the song that you requested we go out under. Andy's trolling the fuck out of you right now. <laughs> I did not request any song. You didn't request the international, <laughs> the international in, ta- in Tagala? <laughs> All right, here it is. I recognize that tune. Remember when uh, Asher and Ariella had their engagement party at the Verso Loft and everybody was singing the Internationale? I was, do. It's great for parties. In Tagalog. It was really weird. Yeah. I didn't know uh, that all those people knew Tagalog. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you want to sing along? No, I don't. Um, <laughs> but also, um, the Philippines is a lot of languages, right? So they have different versions of it in different languages. Oh, okay. Is this your preferred one or you just hate all of them? Uh, no, I don't know. I just didn't know if they exist on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's on Sorry. YouTube, dude. <laughs> Hitler massacred 3 million Jews. Now, there is 3 million, there's a 3 million drug addict. There are. I'd be happy to slaughter him. Bloodiest day yet in Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte's war on drugs. 32 people killed in dozens of anti-drug operations in Bulacan, a province north of the capital Manila. Provincial Police Chief Romeo Tarabat said 109 petty criminals have been arrested and dozens of guns seized. And he claims that these men all died in police shootouts. But activists and human rights groups say police often execute suspects and plant drugs and guns at the scene. Duterte welcomed the bloodshed, saying, let's kill another 32 every day. Maybe we can reduce what ails this country. Get up! Contra! Loga!